on. Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Sunday morning, uh, in a series entitled Gleanings from the Book of Genesis, we come now to uh, chapter 12. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now and put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please make that Bible a gift uh, to you today. We want everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible. And uh, please uh, avail yourself of that for, for those purposes. Uh, also, as we're finding our place here, just a reminder on Sunday nights, that's when we go through at six in the evening from Genesis to Revelation, a survey of the entire Bible, uh, currently studying the book of Daniel, and uh, each of you are invited for that. Well, we'll be looking in earnest in the first nine verses of, of uh, chapter 12, but we've got to get a little bit of um, context here, so we'll pick up our reading in chapter 11, verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and uh, Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people uh, whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, and so they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were there then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there then to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed, going still toward the south. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you even as we've sung here this morning of your greatness, uh, of your goodness. We thank you this morning for your love. We thank you for your presence with us always. And we thank you that you are for us. And Lord, you know the deepest needs that we have in our lives, uh, the need to be loved, uh, the need for someone to be present with us, the need for someone in our life to be for us. And we thank you, Lord, that even as uh, the people who are that in our lives will sometimes ebb and flow, that you are always that. And you've always been that to us. And we bless you for it. And we pray as we turn to your word this morning that you would speak to us your voice and and your heart to us from your throne, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, through your word into uh, each of our lives and into each of our relationships with you. 
as we have a desire to be conformed uh, not by the very, very powerful conforming forces uh, of this world or of our own flesh, but to be conformed by your Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. That's what we long for. That's what we ask for. And we ask that you would continue that work this morning now in these verses. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As a whole, the book of Genesis is a record of four great events and uh, four uh, great uh, human beings uh, that are recorded in it. The four great events in human history recorded in Genesis is the creation, uh, the fall of man, uh, the flood at the time of the ark, and then also God's dispersion of the people at the uh, Tower of Babel. And uh, those great events in the section of the book of Genesis that uh, focuses upon all of that are really the first 11 chapters of, of the book. And today we begin the second half of the book and venturing into chapter 12, uh, the section that deals with the four great personages, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob, and also uh, Joseph. And here in chapter 12, we are uh, formally introduced to the first of those great persons, a man named Abraham. He will later be named Abraham, uh, Abram. He will later be named Abraham uh, formally in chapter 17, and for good re reason. But you'll excuse me if I jump between both of those names, and between now and chapter 17, you'll know who I'm talking about. Uh, Abraham is arguably the most prominent and influential person uh, in uh, all of human history, uh, certainly barring Jesus, of course, as he is uh, highly esteemed in the three great monotheistic religions uh, of the world, in Christianity, in Judaism, and also in uh, Islam. Additionally, without any understanding, I think, of these first nine verses of chapter 12, we can have no hope of not only understanding uh, this man's life, but have no hope of, of uh, understanding the world that we live in today. Uh, these first nine verses of chapter 12 uh, reveal to us and explain to us the birth of the Jewish people in human history and the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and then most important of all, God's gift of a Messiah, God's gift of a Savior of Jesus Himself to the world through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From the middle of chapter 4, uh, all the way through uh, chapter 12, with the exception of the accounts related to the flood in Noah's time and then Ham's sin, as we've studied before, and then the uh, events surrounding the Tower of Babel. Uh, these chapters that we've been looking at are, and largely skipping over, are, are just jam-filled with genealogies. And uh, you have the bloodline of Adam to Noah, and then there are the bloodlines of Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and all of the various uh, uh, nations and peoples that came out of their bloodlines and the various parts of the world that they uh, ultimately settled into, as is recorded in chapters 10 and 11. I do think it's helpful to understand a couple things in terms of timing to get our bearings, and that is to realize that from the time uh, of the flood to the time of the Tower of Babel was a period of a hundred years. Uh, from the events surrounding the Tower of Babel until uh, the Abram and coming into contact with him here now in the Scripture, there is a, a period of 350 uh, years. But in, in chapter 11, verse 10, at that particular point, uh, the focus of all of these genealogies, all of these people that make up the entire world, at that point it begins to narrow down uh, uh, to the descendants of Shem. 
and uh, begins to look at, in specifically at the bloodline uh, of Shem. And within that bloodline of Shem, Shem, it takes us all the way to the bloodline of Abram or, or Abraham. Because, and the reason that it does this, the reason that it moves as quickly as, as it does in this, uh, in this regard is that the Bible isn't written to supply us uh, with a, a broad history of mankind or to inform us about all of the events of, of the ancient world. The Bible is written supremely to provide us with a salvation history. It is a record of the means by which God has chosen to undo the immeasurable damage that was done by Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden, in their sin, in their uh, rebellion, and, God, and God's means of undoing that immeasurable damage by virtue of a salvation and by virtue of a Savior uh, of His choosing. A Savior who would be, as we've already been told in chapter 3, verse 15, born of the seed of a woman. A Savior who would be born into the world by way of virgin birth. And now here, God begins to narrow down the human bloodlines through whom this Savior would be born. And thus the focus now upon Abraham and Isaac and upon Jacob. The Apostle uh, Peter preached Je of Jesus in Jerusalem. A crowd had gathered around when God had used him in the healing of a man that was lame at the beautiful gate uh, and uh, in the book of Acts chapter 3. And as this a crowd has gathered around him to wonder what in the world has happened in this miracle, a crowd of Jews, by the way, and he declared to them, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our prophets, uh, our fathers, uh, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. He references Genesis chapter 12. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. All of this is intended to ultimately drive everyone's focus ultimately to the greatest person that is found in the Bible, and that is Jesus himself. Now, in chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, as we have read those, those verses, it provides us with a backstory that's important for understanding chapter 12. I know this gets tedious for people uh, sometimes, but, uh, you know, to sit in it, people feel like this is a history lesson or this is a geography lesson. I can't help it. It's in the Bible. And if we cannot understand chapter 12 without understanding the final verses of chapter 11, why go to chapter 12 if we have no hope of understanding it, independent of those verses? So it requires some work and some attention to uh, glean what it is that God wants to speak to us through uh, His Word. From the middle of uh, chapter 4, uh, it, uh, it, well, and, and so it provides us with that, with that backdrop. And there we're told, as we've read, that Abram was one of three sons of a man by the name of Terah. Uh, in verses 27 and 28, that Abram had a nephew by the name of Lot, whose father had died. Verse 30, Abram had, uh, had a wife named Sarai, but she was barren, that is, she, she was infertile couldn't bear children. And uh, in verse 28, that initially this entire family uh, lived in. Indeed, they had their absolute roots in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And that uh, being uh, the native land, we're told, of Terah, Abraham's father. It is modern-day Iraq. It, it is clear that at some point, while the family was still living, Abram himself, still living in Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, that God spoke the message 
that is contained in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, to Abram. He didn't receive it after leaving Ur of the Chaldees. He received it while he was still uh, residing uh, there. And you notice that first line of of chapter 12, verse 1, uh, that we are told, we're not told that the Lord uh, presently said these things to uh, Abram, but that he had, past tense, spoken these things uh, to him. Now, uh, Stephen in the book of Acts, uh, he, he makes all of this very clear in his address to the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, immediately before his martyrdom, he was the first martyr uh, of the early church. And um, as he recounted the, the long his, their long history of rejecting all of the messengers that God had sent to them. And of Abraham, Stephen declared, Acts chapter 7, verse 2, if you're taking notes, and he said, uh, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that is Ur of the Chaldees, uh, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And so this was a revelation he received from God while in Ur of the Chaldeans. And, uh, and, and as a result of receiving this, at some point the entire family uh, departed from Ur uh, with the intention of making their way to Canaan, as we see in chapter 11, verse 31. Uh, this represents a failure on Abraham's part. Uh, he was called to leave his family and go to Canaan. But he takes his nephew Lot with him, who is going to be nothing but a problem, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And he also brings his father with him, and he was called to separate from him. And that's going to complicate things for Abram uh, sooner rather than, than later. And uh, the immediate problem that bringing his father uh, brought to Abram was that they got as far as Haran on their way to Canaan, and then they stopped there. And they proceeded then to dwell there until the death of Abram's father. And uh, presumably, because he couldn't continue on any further, whether because of illness or, or because of his, uh, his old age or, or health. And because of that, Abram spends a number of years in the city of Haran. And uh, those years that he spent there are known uh, as the wasted years in Haran. He was never intended to invest that portion of his life in, in that place. It is then after the death of Terah that the chronology then picks up in, in cha uh, chapter 12, verse 4, with that word, uh, so, with Abram now leaving Haran, and uh, with his wife Sarai, with his nephew uh, Lot, all of the possessions that they had, all of the uh, servants and that, that they had uh, gathered together, and they then departed uh, for Canaan as God had instructed them to do uh, so long uh, ago before. And again, all of this is important to understand. Abram and also the lesson that we want to pull from his life here this morning. Now, let's examine for a moment God's call upon Abram's life, God's uh, command upon his life. And God's call is a command. They're not uh, two entirely different things. Sometimes we can look at a call and say, that's optional, a command, that's not uh, optional. Uh, but it is both a call and a call that is a command that God gives to Abram here. And you notice the call that is given him there in verse 1. He was to get out of his country. He was to leave his family and his father's house. So he was to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and, uh, and, and he was to leave his family and leave his, his father's house there. He was to leave everything about Ur of the Chaldeans completely behind him. Now, one of the things 
that's important in uh, really understanding Abram, uh, because we esteem him so highly as Christians, and and rightly so. Uh, But uh, we can tend to think that God uh, calls him to go to Canaan, because when God looked down into Ur of the Chaldeans, this place that was filled with pagans and filled with idolatry, that he saw this lone Jewish boy uh, standing for God and living for God in the spiritual darkness of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, But none of that is true at all. Uh, there were no Jews at the time. Abram is the first Jew <laughs> to uh, come into existence. And, and neither Abram nor his family were monotheistic at all. They were idol worshipers. They were pagans. They worshipped all of the gods that were being worshipped there in Ur uh, of, of the Chal- Chaldeans. And Joshua makes this very, very clear. And addressing the Jews as he is immediately prior to his death in Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Allow me to read a couple of those verses. And Joshua said to all of the people, to Jews, by the way, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And then here it is, God speaking. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all of the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. In other words, when God called Abram, he called Abram out of an idolatrous, pagan, Gentile background. That's what his family was, and that's what uh, he was. And uh, the point that Joshua is making is that it was God who made Abraham into the something made him into the someone that we all uh, respect uh, today. At some point, while in Ur, however, the Lord did appear to Abram, uh, made his existence known to, uh, to Abram. Again, as Stephen declared in Acts chapter 7, he said, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Uh, and so here is Abram, here is Abraham. He is living in this pagan context. He is living in an idolatrous uh, culture. Uh, his family is engaged in all of this. He has uh, roots in all of this. And suddenly, we have no revelation on the specifics of it. God makes himself known to Abram. And imagine this. I mean, if you have come out of paganism, if you have come out of idolatry, uh, and the worst idolatry of all is the idolatry of, of our country and our age, the idolatry and the worship of self, and you're worshiping all of these things, and it results in a certain quality of life that is no quality of life at all. It is a degrading to a human being. It is for a human being to live below what a human being would live if he worshiped nothing. And then God appears to him, the God of the Bible that we know and we love, and here is God now put in contradistinction to all of that as he reveals himself to Abram. And clearly with this manifestation of of himself, of God, Abram became a believer uh, in the Lord. He entered into a relationship with him and complete with a desire to obey uh, this God who has revealed himself so wonderfully to him. And it's out of that personal relationship 
that began between he and God, initiated by God, by the way that God then commanded Abram uh, to leave uh, Ur for uh, Canaan. And later we're going to see this this, uh, heart uh, uh, of Abram. We're going to see that his, his relationship with God in full bloom. Upon entering into the land of Canaan, the very first thing he does is he builds altars. Not once, but he builds it twice, uh, expressing his uh, worship and, uh, and love of the Lord upon entering into that, that promised land of Canaan. Now, for Abram to, and we've got to put ourselves in his shoes a little bit, in order for him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. You know, we live in this Western culture. We live in American culture. Uh, if anybody's over the age of 30, why are they still encumbering the earth? They all ought to die. Uh, you know, it's all youth-oriented, and, it's, and there's disrespect, the family unit, who cares what a parent or a grandparent thinks, or a brother or a sister. We're not dealing with that kind of a culture. We're talking about your, there were no social security, there were no retirement plans, there were no IRAs, there was no Medicare, there was none of that. Your family was all of that to you. And it was very patriarchal, and uh, it was the unit. And so how they esteemed uh, a family in those days as opposed to how we do it today, I mean, you almost have to stop and really put yourself in, in their shoes. And so it wouldn't have been easy for uh, Abram. Here he is, 75 years old. He is middle-aged in terms of what his lifespan is going uh, uh, to be. And when you're middle-aged, that's not a time for moving. Uh, in general, that's a time for settling in uh, for the, you know, the second half of, of the game. And, and uh, he was to leave the city that he'd been born in, that he had been raised in. He's going to leave all of the memories of it. He's going to leave all of the familiar sights and sounds, all of the familiar uh, culture. He uh, was to part from his family and his friends. He was to leave all of the comfort, all of the material security uh, of his family and his life that was found there. And these would have been um, among the obstacles that Abram faced in obeying God's call uh, upon his, his life. I think it's important as we look at that and we think, wow, that's a tough thing to ask of anyone. Uh, it, it is important to stop and to realize that the call of Jesus upon every single Christian uh, is not only is not less than that, uh, it is even far more than that. Uh, the demand that God places upon us as uh, his disciples. Uh, Jesus uh, declared in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he said to his disciples, that is to us as Christians, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. For whoever desires to save his life, you'll lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the entire world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And Jesus understood that the same obstacles that Abram uh, faced in obeying God's call upon his life are the same obstacles every one of us as, as Jesus' disciples face as well. In fact, uh, there's a section of Scripture uh, devoted to it in, in the Gospels, and it's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Allow me to uh, read it to you. Now, it happened as they journeyed, Jesus and the disciples, on the road, that someone came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And then another approached Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are 
uh, at my house. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus identified these three uh, great obstacles that we all face in obeying uh, God's uh, call upon our lives. The obstacle of an addiction uh, to physical uh, comfort, and then the obstacle of family approval, and then the obstacle of economic uh, security. And it is the love of these things that remain the mortal enemies of uh, the call of God upon uh, the lives of uh, men and women who are Christians to this, this very age. And we're all familiar with them in our own hearts, in our own consideration. You notice God's promise. He makes the command, He makes the demand, uh, but then always the promises that are associated with it, and the specific promises that he made to Abram in verses 2 and 3. He said, I will make you a great nation. And here you have uh, him and Sarai. Uh, they are both oldish and getting older, and they are also childless. And yet God promised that he would uh, not only allow them to have children, but that one day uh, a great nation of people, a great people and a great nation will rise up from their bloodline, speaking of the Jews and the nation of Israel. You notice in verse 2, he said, God said, I will bless you and make your name uh, great. And so God has done it. Uh, Abram didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to hire a a legal team, a public relations team to become one of the most admired and respected names in human history. All he had to do was obey God, do what God called him to do, and it was God, as he promised, that made Abraham the household name that he is all around the world uh, today. And God went on in verse 3 to declare, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And here is God knowing that what he's calling Abram to do is not an easy thing, moving to another country, not inhabited by uh, nice people, but by the Canaanites. And so he uh, gives this assurance of the fact that he will protect him uh, there and the, the assurance of, of safe keeping. And of course, this uh, the statement of God uh, to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Uh, this great promise is also applied to Abraham's descendants, the Jews, and uh, references for that. If you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 27, verse 29, Numbers chapter 24, verse 9, and multiplied times in in the Scriptures. Notice in verse 3 as well, God declared that in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And and the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing uh, pointed to uh, the coming of Jesus into the world. Uh, and, and this is the, ultimately the blessing that God is speaking of here. Uh, the provision uh, to mankind of a Savior through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, uh, Jacob, through the bloodline of the Jewish people. The, the two great blessings that God has given man in, in the Jews, and there are many... <clears throat> Excuse me. There are many. Uh, those of you who are familiar with this kind of thing and you study uh, who are the uh, Nobel uh, Peace Prize winners and, and, and all in terms of any nationality of people, uh, any tribe or kindred of people in the world, the Jews absolutely dominate in, in terms of uh, that award given to excellence in every field uh, known to man. Uh, the Jews themselves are a gift to the world, uh, to mankind. But from among the Jews, the great gift that God has introduced to the entire world from them is, first of all, the Scriptures. 
the Bible itself. And then second, not in any, in any order, because it is the thing that is, is supreme, and that is it has supplied the world through their bloodline with a Messiah, with a Savior, uh, with Jesus Himself. And it's important to notice that in all of this, when God says, uh, in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is talking about bringing this Messiah into the world, not only to bless the Jews, though to bless the Jews, but also to be a blessing to the entire uh, world. And uh, uh, Paul brings this out in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all of the nations shall be blessed. And so then, all those who are of faith are blessed with, with believing Abraham. And the heart of God from the very beginning in the establishment of the Jewish people, the heart of God was to bless the Jews, yes, but to bless the entire world through the Jews. And of course, unfortunately, this fact uh, became almost completely lost upon the Jews right away as they began to view the Gentile world uh, as their enemy. And not without some cause, by the way. But, uh, and that's a, a mindset that we can begin to uh, develop even as Christians toward uh, the unsaved world as well. Now, notice Abram's uh, ultimate obedience here in verses 4 through 6. He, from Haran, he makes the journey of 400 miles or so uh, to Canaan, came to a place by the name of Shechem. He went as far as the terebinth tree of, of Morah. Apparently, that was some kind of a, uh, a landmark there at the time. Uh, we're told that the land was uh, inhabited by the Canaanites at uh, at that time as, as Abram comes into the land. And then notice in verse 7, God makes a second promise to uh, Abram. And uh, it's interesting that God doesn't rebuke Abram uh, when he finally gets to Canaan. God doesn't say, it's about time uh, you uh, got here. He didn't rebuke him for his tardiness at all. But, but instead, because he's as gracious as he is, he, he uh, greeted uh, Abram's obedience with a, a further promise that he would give, God would give, the land of Canaan to Abram's descendants, uh, to, the, to the Jews. And uh, clearly, as Abram makes his way belatedly uh, to Canaan, it is never too late to obey God. It is never too late to obey God's call uh, uh, upon our lives. And that's a tremendous uh, encouragement. Hey, we might just stop and ask ourselves for a moment, why did God give the Jews uh, that little sliver of land uh, called Israel today? Think about that. Why didn't he give them Peru? Why didn't he give them New Jersey? Why didn't he give them Switzerland? Why didn't he give them Japan? I mean, he got the whole world to get it, but he gives them this little tiny uh, sliver uh, of, of land there. And God gave this land to Abram because he wanted this land to be inhabited. This piece of land specifically in the ancient world, he wanted it to be inhabited by a group of people who number one, knew God, and number two, loved uh, God. Because this small strip of land called Israel, no bigger than our tiny little state, New Jersey, it lies at the crossroads of three of the great continents of the world, of Europe, of Asia, and of Africa. Uh, sometimes if you ever witness to a Jewish person concerning uh, Jesus and share the gospel with them, especially if you do it in, in Israel, uh, sooner or later, later, somebody is going to uh, try and uh, push you back a little bit by saying something like this. Listen, you Christians have been, been given a great commission. 
uh, by Jesus to take the gospel into uh, the entire uh, uh, world and make disciples of all nations. But as Jews, we have no such commission. We don't operate under that kind of commission. We don't feel uh, uh, compelled to save uh, the entire world or to reach out and proselytize in the way uh, that all of, uh, of, of you do. And the reason that the Jews were not given a great commission is because God placed them in a spot in the world where they wouldn't need to go out to the whole world, but that the entire world would come to them. And, and in coming to them through the land uh, of Israel, that they would then be exposed to a quality of society, a quality of nation, a quality of, uh, of human being that they would look at and they would wonder what kind of a God produces a nation like this, a society like this. Who is the God that creates a quality of human being like that? And then in asking uh, the question, then to be pointed to Jehovah, to Yahweh, to the uh, God uh, of the Bible. The deserts that surround and make up the Middle East in, in the, uh, related to the ancient world, it forced all trade in the ancient world through Israel to get something from Europe to Africa or Africa to Europe or from Europe to Asia or from Asia to Europe or Asia to Africa or Africa to Asia. Did I miss anything? You had to go through the land of Israel and God's heart for the Gentiles, not only to bless the people of the Jewish people in giving them that land, but that it would then become a blessing to the whole world uh, coming to know uh, him. Abram's response in the latter part of verse seven through verse nine, in verse seven he built an altar to the Lord. And here we get to see Abram's heart. Here we get to see Abram's motivation for why would he leave the life that he had in Ur of Chaldea in order to come to this place that he has come to. And he takes this life in which he was prosperous, in which he was comfortable, and now he chooses the life of a stranger, the life of a pilgrim. And the reason that he did that was out of his love, out of his respect uh, for this God who had opened his eyes up to the truth of things spiritually. And so he takes and he builds an off altar to the Lord to express his appreciation for the privilege, for the privilege of being able to live a life in the plan of God. Today, so often we put people in headlocks to try and get them uh, to obey God. And it's a, it's a foolish thing uh, to try and, and, and do it in, in that way. And, and as if we're doing some great thing for God by serving Him and in His plan for our lives. There's nothing of that in Abram. There's just awe over the fact that God would not only save him, but that God had a plan for his life that he got to then spend the rest of his life uh, exploring. And then he went on further and he pitched his tent between Bethel and Ai uh, in verse 8. He built an altar to the Lord there and then he called upon the name of the Lord. And when it talks about the name of the Lord in the Old Testament, when we, we have a name and it's just kind of like, okay, they got to have something to... Uh, in order to get a driver's license someday or to be, you know, identified as different from the other 35 students that'll be in their kindergarten class. So we attach these names with no real significance so often within our culture. But what a name represented in the Old Testament is it represented the, the nature. It represented the culture, uh, the, the character rather, of, 
of the person. And so when Abram stops now and he calls upon the name of the Lord, he is worshiping God for his nature. He is worshiping God for his characteristics and, and his, his character. And then finally, he, may, he traveled south uh, even further uh, into the land, we're told in verse 9. I'd like to close this morning with just uh, a simple application of, of this early uh, section on Abram's life. And, and here's we've looked here at Abram and in these nine verses and examined the call of God upon Abram's life, the importance of his obedience to that call. How important was it that Abram obeyed God's call upon his life? wasn't merely saved and stayed in Ur of the Chaldeans, but that he got saved and then was faithful to the plan and the call of God upon his life subsequently. It was more important than we could ever put into words because of what God planned to do through his life and how his life was tied to this name, to this Savior, to this person called Jesus. And as we look at this related to Abram's life, I think it's a good opportunity to take a moment and to consider our own obedience to God's call upon each of our lives as Christians. And to just ask ourselves, with no, with no intent on my heart at all to have plowed deeply or to hammer people, or to make anybody feel bad, or anything like that. We're, we're grown adults who know the Lord by, the, by and large, and love the Lord, and to just stop and think about this thing. And do each of us uh, sit here this morning with the peace of knowing that as best as we can hear God, that our lives are fully surrendered to and, and engaged in the plan and the purposes of God for our lives. And, and almost always, the first thing that can happen is, oh, all right, I'll be a missionary. And that's, not what, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, you don't have to leave <clears throat> Modesto or this California and become a missionary necessarily. But has our history with God involved a time where we've sought God for His will concerning our lives? And am I presently living my life with that, that abiding peace that my life is being spent exactly where God wants it to be spent and then how He wants it to be spent for His purposes? whether it's in the, the job that I hold, the place that He's placed me and you there, or if I'm uh, seeking uh, higher education, or whether it has to do with the city that I live in, uh, or the church that I attend, or my Christian service, and right on down the line. Do I have that sense of peace that is as best as I can hear God. He knows that I have surrendered to Him, and I sit here with a peace that my life is right where He wants it uh, to be. Not merely concerning salvation, but concerning His call and His plan for my life. And, and when that exists within our life, that is a priceless thing to possess. And so if we sit here this morning and that is our reality, hallelujah, that is a tremendous uh, confidence to possess within, within our lives. Or if we're not quite able to say that, do any of us sit here this morning and ignoring uh, or disregarding or disobeying God's call and His plan upon our lives, His kingdom purposes for our lives. Now, this is more than being saved. This is more than being a Christian. 
It's more than being a Christian who obeys God's commandments in His Word. This is something beyond all of that. And and even if all of those things are a given, and all of those things are in place, the question that Abraham's life, the challenge that it brings to me and to you is, is there that concern for the will of God and the plan of God for my life now that he has saved me? The three locations uh, that are mentioned here in this passage uh, are Ur, uh, of the Chaldeans, and then Haran and Canaan. And dwelling in Ur represents the person who has an encounter with God. Uh, the person becomes saved, but then refuses to separate themselves in any significant way from their old uh, life. They possess no concern at all or any kind of openness at all uh, for the will of God for their lives after having become saved. And then uh, dwelling in Haran represents the Christian life that's lived in partial obedience to uh, God's plan and God's call uh, for our lives. It's the person that says, I'll meet God halfway on this. Uh, but I, I won't meet him all of the way. And, and I'll meet him halfway, and meeting him halfway, I think I'm doing a lot better than a lot of other Christians I know. And, and, and so we'll meet him halfway, only willing to go so far, but never to the place uh, of obeying God in, 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 when it comes to the point where it requires a loss of comfort, uh, a loss of family approval, or a, a, a loss of uh, economic security. And so I, I meet God halfway, this part of my life is, is on my terms, and then I settle down into this kind of a place in life for long years, as, as, as Abram did, and, and, and it can be possible to do it even for a lifetime, very, very far away, live my entire life very far away from God's kingdom plans and purposes for, for my life. And it is to, to take my talent, it is to take my mina, as Jesus spoke about, to take this coin that has been given to us that represents this call upon our lives, and to put it into the napkin, and to bury it, and to refuse to put it into circulation. And then you have Canaan, which represents a full surrender and obedience to God concerning His kingdom plans and His purposes for our lives, and the willingness to do it, whatever the sacrifices are involved in doing it. And concerning God's plan and purposes for our lives, every single Christian in this room and in this world abides in one of those three places this morning. But only Canaan, obedience, not only to God's commandments as they're given in the Word, but also to his specific plan and purposes for our lives is acceptable to God. And it's important to hear that. Me first and foremost. And it's important to say that. And it's an important lesson. Because Christianity within our culture is increasingly becoming a very weak thing, a very flabby thing, a very, very self-willed thing. And it is only the Bible that keeps us from being seduced by it and settling into Ur of the Chaldeans or into Haran. And that's why there's the necessity of learning the Word of God and growing in the Word of God so that I take the Christianity that I am living and experiencing and putting it against the Christianity in the culture or my own Christianity so that I don't discover that there is some massive gulf between 
the Christianity that I have come to believe is true Christianity and the Christianity that is revealed in, in the Scriptures. And so are we in Canaan? And if we're not, then to get there just as Abram did, to live our lives in the fullness of His promises and in the fullness of His call upon our lives. And with Abram, and I think it's one of the great encouragements of his life as it communicates to us today, that if that has never happened, better late than never. And God still has plans. And I think about how many in a room like this or in any church in any place in Modesto or in the world or as God looks at Christians around the world all in one shot. We could never presume to guess a percentage of what it might be. We could never know that, so why would we do that? But to just stop and consider how many individual Christians that you know and that God sees and may even be us are thoroughly camped in Ur of the Chaldeans or in Haran, and how relatively few ever get to Canaan in this regard. And yet the future of the church and God's work in His kingdom, humanly speaking, in human history, depends upon the fact that each of us ultimately gets to Canaan in this regard. And for those of you who sense that God has called you to be a missionary. And I say this in a desire to push strong against the selfism of our culture and the addiction to comfort within our culture. But for those of you who sense that God has called you to be a missionary, or a pastor, or an evangelist, or a worship leader, or whatever else, there will be great sacrifice in obeying God in that calling, but you must do it. And I tell you that you must, you must, you must, you must Obey God's call upon your life and to step out into that calling 100%. That is the Christianity that is described in the Scriptures and is to be the norm for all of us. And when we do, for all of the suffering for all of the hardship that we will face in any calling and in those callings, you will also come to discover that the blessings of God that are found there are far greater. Let's make sure that no one's calling in this room or within the sound of my voice, not because it's my voice, but because of the Scripture here this morning is sitting in some napkin somewhere, buried someplace, and has failed to be brought into circulation. And maybe some of us got to Canaan at one time, but we've gone back to Haran, and we've gone back to Ur the Chaldees. We saw things serving the Lord that we didn't like that broke our heart, that disillusioned us, that harmed us. But there's never an excuse for leaving that calling and going back. And if you know what it is to be there in Canaan, to be used by God, you know what your gifting and calling is, and you've gone back from it. Don't stay there. Go back to Canaan. And let me close with this in 90 seconds. I am not asking anyone, it's so important that you don't misunderstand me here. I'm not asking 
anyone to leave this place today and go into your cars and, and now be knotted up in anxiety. And, 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 and now you're trying to guess what God's will is for your life. And am I, am I here? And, and, and all not, that's, that's not, that's not what's happening here. And it's not what I have to happen to you. Abram knew God's call upon his life. That's what we're talking about. Not wondering what his call might be or what it might be and this and that. And I, this is talking about when we know what he's called us to do. And we're disregarding that. That's what God wants to take and uh, bring our attention to if it's present in any way in our lives. And to have uh, solved and resolved here this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Before we do pray, I, if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I mean, you may just think that Jesus popped into human history, said, hi, I'm the Savior. And you say to yourself, why would I believe in him to be the Savior over anyone else? And you see this morning how deeply rooted the salvation is, how perfect this plan is that God uh, has in order to provide a Savior to you. And if you'd like to become a Christian this morning, and it is your privilege, and it is God's joy to offer that salvation to you today, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to enter into this life that we've been describing today and to be forgiven and to be saved. Father, thank you for this passage, and we commit it into the hands of your Holy Spirit and... We pray that your voice, as needed in any of our lives, would continue to live through it. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.